This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1... You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. It's America's the greatest country in the world. It's uh, Saturday. It's the last hour. It goes so fast. All right. Uh, let's chat about Trump and the tax return. So you know the whole Maddow story. We don't need to go into that whole thing by now. Um, you know the whole joke about how she dragged it out like it was an episode of The Bachelor. What was so weird is when she read it, and we'll get to all this, but when she read it, it was as if she read it for the first time on the air, right? And and the reason was, the reason it sounded like that, she, right? It was like, you know, she teased it. She obviously read it beforehand, but she teased it and teased it and teased it and then dragged it out throughout the episode. And then when she read it, she was like, well, let's see what we got here. It's, uh, well, he, uh, he made $140 million. That's tough. Um, he... It's like here that he paid uh, 40, 40 million. He paid for, right? It was like, well, why, <laughs> why are you reading it like that? And why are you even sharing this when it makes him look so good? So the reason it came across like that is because the left, the Democrats, the media were so hysterical. About the tax returns, the tax returns, the tax. We got to get the tax returns. He won't release them. What's he hiding? We got to find him. We got to get him. And then Rachel Maddow finally got one, but was so blinded in her, uh, it's not rage, but just blinded by this, this desire to find the tax returns that she couldn't see clearly that they made him look good. (laughs) <laughs> right and it really wasn't until she read it on the tv on on the air for the first like that was the first moment when she could look at him with clarity that's what that was that's why she read it like well he uh oh it looks like he made right i mean she obviously read it before but before it didn't it was all about getting them and this on the air was the first time when she could see like oh this i shouldn't be reading this on the tv now because <laughs> it makes him look good why did she act like that? Trump caused her to. Okay, He played a power move on her, on the media, on the Democrats the whole time. So uh, Robert Greene, 48 Laws of Power, you have to read it. One of the laws is, I think it's Law 18, make other people come to you. Use bait if necessary. Make other people come to you. This is a classic example of that. 
a classic example of people saying, hey, Donald Trump, uh, we need your tax returns. Oh, these tax returns? I don't think so. Oh, no, we uh, we demand that we see them. Um, No. What? That's unprecedented. We need them, need them, need them. Nah, I'm not going to give them to you. Oh, oh, and they just freaked out, freaked out, freaked out, freaked out, freaked out. And it got Hillary all of her message and everything. And Trump just held them. He knew, especially the 2004 or five tax returns, he knew they made him look good. Why would he hand them over? It's amazing. You know, people kept asking because we don't think like Trump. Uh, people ask, why, what are you hiding? Why aren't you handing them over? And he's thinking, why would I hand them over? I know they're good. <laughs> I know they make me look good. Why would I hand them over at all? I'm going to wait until I want to hand them over. I'm not just going to give them to you. I'm going to make you go hysterical. I'm going to make you come to me. Desperately seeking for them. All right, so let me give you an example of this, his historical example. Uh, I got two. What should we start with? Let's do this one first, then we'll go to Napoleon next. Um, 1905, Russia and Japan. They were at war. We don't think about those two hating each other that much, but uh, Russia and Japan were at war in 1905. The Russians were much, much stronger uh, than the Japanese, especially the Navy, not even close. But the Japanese sent some false information to the Russians saying that the Japanese fleet was vulnerable. Right? Sent some, some information somehow to the Russians that the Japanese fleet was vulnerable and this was the time to strike. You got to do it right now. So the Russians, they fall for it and they, they call an all-out attack. Right? The Russians took the bait. The thing is they couldn't sail through the Strait of Gibraltar because that was controlled by the British and the British and the Japanese were aligned. So the Russians had to sail all the way around the southern tip of Africa, adding 6,000 miles to their trip. Now, once they get there and they pass the Cape of Good Hope, the Japanese somehow send another false message to the Russians that they moved their navy to attack the Russians in the open sea. Right? So the Russians are just coming across the, the southern tip of Africa and they get word that the Japanese have, the Navy has left Japan and it's coming towards them. So they're going to fight at any moment now. So the Russians, like, all hands on deck, combat alert. The thing is, the Japanese weren't attacking, they were resting just back in Japan. So, but the Russians are on full alert the whole time. And when they finally do arrive in Japan, they're exhausted. Right? They just traveled forever for, for so long. They're, they're, they're like, they were on high alert the whole time. And the Japanese crushed the Russian Navy, no problem. The Japanese made the Russians come to them. When you do that, it's now on your terms. When you make someone come to you, it's on your terms. That's the key to this. So again, to bring it back around to Trump, the question is, why didn't Trump release these tax returns earlier? Because they're so good, right? They make him look good. Why not release them right away, right when they were, people asked for him? Hmm. The question is, why, why ever release them? Look what not releasing them did. It made the left hyperventilate throughout the entire campaign, assuming he had something to hide. 
And it made them overreach constantly, making this a huge deal when most Americans didn't think it was. And it got Hillary all flustered, right? Hillary's constantly talking about his tax returns. When Americans didn't care, they wanted to talk about the real issues, right? So Hillary could be like, where are your tax returns? What are you hiding? And Trump could be like, listen, people just want to talk about immigration. It got Hillary off her message. And that's what it, right? That's the, it's on, if you make someone come to you, it's on your terms. That's what Trump did. Trump said, come to me on this. You, you come on, you come, you attack me on this, but now it's on my terms. So you attack me, I'm getting you off your game and I'm going to come back around and say, you know what, Hillary, the people really want to talk about immigration. And now I look good. You look foolish. That's the equivalent of having the Russians attack around the tip of Africa thinking now's the time to strike. And then here we are, the left, they think they finally have him. And it makes Trump look great. Trump knew it was going to make him look great the whole time. He knew that when he finally let them have it, they'd all have egg on their faces. How much more fun is it doing it this way? (laughs) Could have released him uh, a year and a half ago. That's no fun. That doesn't get people to play into his hands. This method sure did. So the overreach part, the overreach, right? The hysteria, like we got him, we got him, we got him. But never for one second did Rachel Maddow say, well, is this what we want? <laughs> is this, is this, does this make him look good? Should we even share these at all? And that's why Trump made her look so foolish. By the way, absolutely he released, he leaked them himself. There's no question about it. No question about it. He does this all the time. This is standard operating procedure. Decades ago, he was all like, he, was, he loved the tabloids. He would call the tabloids up and be like, hey, um, I'm going to give you a scoop on someone cheating on someone else, but you have to write up that I'm going to be at the front row of the Knicks game tomorrow with this supermodel. So you write about that. I'll tell you about this other story. He'd do stuff like that all the time. And then, of course, the infamous John Miller. He would pretend, Donald Trump would pretend to be his PR guy, John Miller, and talk to magazines himself talking about Donald Trump. Remember that whole thing? And then during the campaign, tapes of Trump pretending to be John Miller were somehow leaked. And and Megyn Kelly was, so are you with me, right? This is Donald Trump pretending to be John Miller talking about Donald Trump. Like in the third person. Oh yeah, Donald Trump, you know, he's uh, he's a great guy. He's going out to this this thing next week or whatever. But it was Donald Trump saying, so tapes of this got released. And it was like this big controversy, like, what's up with Donald Trump? He's crazy talking about, you know, like pretending to be someone else, blah, blah, blah. And Megyn Kelly was talking to the People Magazine reporter in the tapes. And Megyn's like, so how do these tapes get released? And she's like, oh, I have no idea. And Megyn Kelly goes, what do you mean? She goes, oh, well, I-, I was the only one who had the tapes and my house burned down and the tapes got destroyed. And Megyn Kelly goes, well, who else had copy of the tapes? And she goes, well, Donald Trump. And it hit Megyn Kelly, wait, you think Donald Trump released these tapes himself? And the, the People Magazine reporter looks at the camera and goes, hi, Donald. <laughs> like, of, like, of course he did. And people are like, whoa, what do you mean he released them himself? That's what he does. Right? Everyone makes everyone come to him. It's brilliant. He never leaves anything to chance. It's all done on purpose. I'll tell you a story of Napoleon Bonaparte doing the same thing next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. 
Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life, and that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, this is the ultimate story of uh, make others come to you. So, Napoleon, 1814, Congress of Vienna. So you got the top guys in Europe coming together to figure out what to do after Napoleon's empire has collapsed. Now, Napoleon wasn't killed. He was exiled, but not very far away. He was exiled uh, to an island like right off the coast of Italy. Like not even... Like, like really, really close to, to Italy. Weird. And the fact that he was imprisoned so close to everyone made everyone really nervous, all the leaders of all the other countries. So the Austrians were freaking out the most, and they were plotting to kill him there, but it was too risky. And, and I mean, Napoleon was, like, legendary, right? So everyone was just really panicked about him, except for one guy, Talleyrand. Talleyrand, if you're in France. Talleyrand. We'll call him Talleyrand. So Talleyrand was Napoleon's foreign minister. It was actually Talleyrand who sold Louisiana to Thomas Jefferson. Um, but that's a different story. So on this island, um, British ships surrounded it, right? So that there's no way he could escape. But he did. Napoleon escaped on a ship with 900 men. Now you're thinking, okay, he got exiled from, from France. World leaders hate him. Uh, he's got a second chance here. I've escaped. Where do you go? He returned not only back to Europe, but back to France. And he goes to Paris, and the people loved him, worshipped him, bowed down at his feet. Our great leader has been resurrected. And the king fled the country, and he took over the throne yet again. And Napoleon ruled France, France for another 100 days, but France was bankrupt. And there's nothing that anyone, even Napoleon, could do to keep, it, or keep her afloat. And it was the Battle of Waterloo. That was the last, the last stand. That was the end of Napoleon once and for all. And then they exiled him to an island off the coast of Africa this time. And he had no chance to escape from there. So what's the lesson here? A couple things to know. Why did he want to escape in the first place? He was pretty dejected after being dethroned the first time. But there were people coming to visit him, telling him that he was more beloved than ever in France. And then people, and he's like, really? <laughs> they still love me? They want, they want me back? Oh, but 
the other world leaders will never accept me. Then people started coming and saying, Napoleon, if you come back, the leaders of England and the leaders of Austria and the leaders of all the world powers are going to take you back. We're going to help. They're going to help you. They're going to support you. And Napoleon's like, whoa, unbelievable. All right, I'm going to go back. So it turns out Napoleon, he gets on this ship. The ship, remember the, the island is surrounded by, by British ships, right? To keep them in. The ship sails in the middle of the afternoon. It, leave, it leaves the island in the middle of the afternoon. I, I When I told you a second ago that the ship sailed away with 900 men, I'm pretty sure in your mind you thought it was pitch black, right? And they somehow sneakily snuck past the British ships. How did they not see him? Nope, middle of the afternoon. And the British ships did see him. They let him go. Why? It was all part of the plan. What plan? It turns out Talleyrand was pulling the strings the whole time. His goal was to have Napoleon return to the throne, not to bring back his glory days, but to crush him once and for all. So Talleyrand set up for people to go to this island and tell Napoleon that the people loved him and that all the countries would welcome him back. He set the trap. And then Talleyrand worked with the foreign ministers of England and Austria to make this happen and to let the, the, the British ships let him go, right? Because Talleyrand knew that Napoleon would take over the throne, he would go to war, and then that would end him once and for all. So he set Napoleon up with an irresistible trap. It was a trap of all of Napoleon's vices, right? Fame, eternal glory, redemption. And he knew that Napoleon would fall for all these things. And it was the perfect way to kill Napoleon once and for all. Talleyrand totally set the trap and he made Napoleon come to him. Now, he could have thrown his weight around, right? He could have yelled uh, at the top of his lungs, made his argument that Napoleon needs to be killed and we need to launch a full-scale attack on Napoleon on this island and all that. But he knew that no one would have listened to him. No one would have listened to him. So instead, he pulled off this amazing plot and he made Napoleon come to him. That's the key. It's the same with Trump. Trump could have said, oh, all right, you want my tax returns? Here there. But why? Instead, he set the Democrats and the media an irresistible trap. He knew they would overreach. He knew they would lose their minds. He knew that they would spin these fabulous tales about Russia and Russian banks and never paying any taxes and all this nonsense. And of course, he knew that the people didn't care. He knew that. And he knew that the Democrats would look like fools when the truth really did come out. And the truth is that in 2005, he made a ton of money and paid a ton of taxes, <laughs> which is why the White House was so quick with their prepared response along the lines of, wow, look how successful he is and look how much he paid in taxes. More than MSNBC paid, more than Barack Obama paid, more than Bernie Sanders paid percentage-wide. All of them, 25% effective income tax. That's huge. He knew that. He's not going to leave that up to chance. He knew what it was. He knew it would make him look good. And that made it all the more reason to not hand them over. He knew not to play his hand. Trump knew to make his enemies come to him because when you force others to act, you are the one in control. If you're having trouble thinking about why Trump does things or what he's up to. 
first just assume that there's a reason behind it all. There's no way that Donald Trump, the type of person he is, the type of industry he's been in for the last how many decades of his life, what, 50 years basically? Five decades? (laughs) The type of industry that he wings it and leaves things to chance. Not a chance in the world. 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Just always just think when everyone else is losing their minds, right? And everyone's like, what is he doing? It's unbelievable. Just be super calm, just like we talked about in the beginning of the show, and just think for a second, hmm, he's probably up to something. What, what is he doing? What's the play here? What's he planning on? Think a couple of steps ahead, because Trump's a couple steps ahead of the media. So if you, if you only react to the media's reactions, you're behind, right? If you only listen to the media and what they're feeding you, and the hysteria that they experience and they're projecting on you, then you're a couple steps behind. Don't be a couple steps behind. You're smarter than them. Think for a second, what is Trump trying to do? And you'll be a couple steps ahead. And even if you don't know what Trump is trying to do, at least you're thinking that way. And that alone keep, makes you a couple steps ahead of the media. one 888 I want to come back, play a video of um, Glenn Beck, actually, from... A couple of years ago, maybe like three or four years ago. That actually has uh, some application to uh, some stuff today. We'll bring it all around. Coming up next, Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. So Donald Trump was in Michigan the other day, and he said he's going to stop the latest uh, increase in cafe fuel standards that Barack Obama imposed before he left the White House. Um, So he's not getting rid of them completely, which is what he should do, and I'll make that argument here, but he's uh, stopping the latest version of it. So let's chat about uh, fuel standards, cafe standards, they're called, which stand for... Uh, sorry. What do they stand for? It stands for corporate average fuel economy. Corporate average fuel economy, which I will explain in a moment here. So the federal government sets a minimum average mileage for each manufacturer's fleet of vehicles, right? And that's why it's important to know what CAFE stands for. Um, because it's the it's the corporate average fuel economy okay so let's say the uh, the standard is 30 miles per gallon okay that's the that's that's what you got to get now if you're ford you can sell one car that gets 20 miles per gallon but then you got to sell another type of car because that's below the standard right 20 miles is below the standard of 30 but then you got to sell another type of car that gets 40 miles per gallon and then you average those two together to get the 30, right? So you can sell one that's below the standard, but you got to sell another one that's above the standard. So if you're a car manufacturer that makes mostly small cars, then your fleet is you know, above the standard. You can actually save cafe credits for making cars in the future that are below the standard. 
So above the standard means you're more fuel efficient. Below the standard means you're not as fuel efficient. You're a gas guzzler, right? So you can save those credits. So Toyota and Honda used to build only smaller cars. So they saved up credits for a long time that they then use on their Lexus and Acura brands, which are below the standards, but they can do that legally because they for so long have built cars above the standards. So there's a couple of reasons why fuel standards are um, a really bad way to conserve gasoline. Now, I want to say I'm coming at this perspective, not from a constitutional uh, limited government libertarian, which is what I am conservative libertarian. I'm coming at this from a progressive environmentalist. So obviously cafe fuel standards are unconstitutional and stupid and got to go from a conservative perspective, but from a progressive environmentalist perspective, they're bad and have to go right. They do the opposite of what people think they actually do. So here's the background. They started in 1975 as a way to conserve gasoline. Well, now we have plenty of gasoline, but it into this global warming thing, right? So now we have higher fuel standards to save the planet, but that's not what it started off as. It started off as ways for people to use less gasoline. Now, a couple of things, fuel standards only apply to new cars, which are about 7% of the cars on the road. So it's not like when you raise the standard, it has an instant effect. Now you may say, oh, well, Slater, you got to start somewhere. Eventually all cars will have the higher standards. Well, the higher fuel standards make cars more expensive. So in reality, the higher standards, then therefore the higher cost of the car causes people to hang on to their older car longer than they otherwise would. So let's say you have an older car that gets 10 miles to the gallon and you're like, ah, I should get a new car. So you're looking to buy a new car and it's $5,000 more expensive than it otherwise would be because the fuel standard is so good you know, so high. So you're like, Oh geez, I can't afford that. All right. Well, I guess I'll drive this old gas guzzler for a couple more years. So it actually makes it worse because people hang on to their older cars longer. It also causes companies to find ways to average out their fleets, which doesn't do anything to improve specific cars, right? So Porsche, which is way below the standard, right? The fuel standard, a Porsche. They merge with Volkswagen, which is above the fuel standard. Now, does that improve the fuel efficiency of a Porsche? No. (laughs) They just merged with Volkswagen, so now the average of their fleet is the standard. Also, this causes companies to make cars that no one wants, right? This is why GM makes the Chevy Cruze. No one wants the Chevy Cruze. The only reason they make the Chevy Cruze is so that they can then sell trucks, which is what people actually want, right? Now, Chevy Cruze, it's fine if you got a fleet of rental cars, but the only reason they make them truly is so that they can be above the standard, get some credits to make cars that are below the standards that people really want. Now, if I'm an environmentalist, I look at that and that's a huge waste. That's a huge waste of everything. That's a waste of uh, metal, It's a waste of raw materials. It's a waste of all the car parts that are manufactured all around the world that then have to be put on tankers or or big giant ships, shipping containers and shipped all around the world, shipped to America and then uh, driven from the ports to Michigan and to put into a car that you then have to take the car, put on the back of a truck and drive it to Florida and 
sell it to Alamo, right? Because no one actually is going to buy the Chevy Cruze, right? So that's a huge waste of resources just so that GM can reach their average uh, and sell cars that people actually want. So again, from an environmentalist perspective, this is a huge giant waste. Also, there's actually two different standards. You have a standard for cars and you have a standard for light trucks. And the idea was when they first did this in 1975 is we don't want to, um, the light trucks have a lower standard and it's because, oh, well, we don't want the light trucks to be more expensive because, um, people use them for work. So they have a lower standard. Well, this inspired car companies to make more SUVs because the SUVs are under the light truck category. So now, because of the higher fuel standards, there's actually more SUVs on the road than there otherwise would be. So if you're an environmentalist who supported the CAFE standard, you're to thank for having SUVs. Also, if I haven't made the point yet, better gas mileage actually encourages people to drive more. So let's break it down here. Let's say uh, your old car can go 10 miles per gallon. And let's say gas is four bucks a gallon because that's what it is in California. Uh, ten, you, so you go 10 miles per gallon. So it costs you $4 to go 10 miles. But if you get a new car that you can go 30 miles per gallon, which costs $4, well, now you just drive more, <laughs> right? You just drive 30 miles and you live further away because you can now, right? So, or you drive you know, downtown when you otherwise wouldn't, but it's like, well, I, I get more gas mileage. So people drive more when they have more gas mileage. So in the end, consumption's about the same. Because people, are, they're, yeah, they're buying more fuel-efficient cars, but they're driving more. So they're still using just as much gasoline as they were before. We saw this happen in the 80s when the CAFE standards went into full effect. The number of vehicle miles traveled shot up four times the rate of population growth. And it's because people could travel more for less money or for the same amount of money. So people just drove more, which again, consumption's the same. So I know I just threw a bunch out there, but it's a mess. And it, again, I love, I love government regulations where not only does it not achieve the desired goal, but it does the opposite, right? It would, it would be one thing if it, if it had all these other unintended consequences, but no, the, the consequence is the opposite of what environmentalists want. Now, what is it really all about? It's all about whatever government and bureaucracy is always all about hiring more lawyers and bureaucrats. That's what it is. The lawyers and the bureaucrats, listen, literally tens of thousands of lawyers and bureaucrats are in charge of cafe standards. It's unbelievable. So that's what it's all about. Trump needed to not only, so so right now it's like 35 miles per gallon, the cafe standard and Obama made it go to 54.5 by 2025. So Trump just got rid of that last part. So now it still stays at whatever it is, 30 miles per gallon. But even that's silly. I mean, we're already there. So it's like, all right, whatever. But um, really just get rid of it because it does the opposite of what environmentalists would even would even want. Now, you know who really does like these though? I should say, not only do bureaucrats and lawyers, but car companies like Toyota, they like them because Toyota has invested a lot of money in more fuel efficient cars and lighter trucks that, that get good fuel efficiency, but mostly cars. So they're above the standard, right? They're above the standard, but they love this regulation because it hurts a company like Fiat Chrysler who sells a ton of heavy trucks and SUVs. 
So Toyota's like, yeah, sure, bring on the regulations. They only hurt us a little bit, but they hurt our competition a lot more, which in the end is good for us. So there's a lot of cronyism going on as well. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Get rid of Cafe Sanders is what I'm saying. All right, I want to come back. I I, I promise I'll play this Glenn Beck video from the other day because uh, this all kind of ties in with environmentalism and uh, science. We'll wrap up the show next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusader. So you know we talk all the time about confirmation bias, which is uh, basically how we all think we're right all the time. And um, we form an opinion instantly and we just polish and perfect it. We never allow in anything that may challenge that opinion because to be wrong feels bad um, and to be proven right feels good, right? So we only let in information we agree with. So researchers asked people in London, uh, and I'll ask you, do you think you are in the nicest half of people? So so are you in the nicest 50% of the American people? You yourself. I'm going to ask you right now. Answer that question. Are you in the nicest 50% of the American people? I think I am. I think I'm in the nicest half. It's not a super high standard. Now, the question is, what percentage of people answered yes? Now, if everyone looked at things in... You know, properly, then it would be half. Right? <laughs> half of people would say they are, and half of people would be like, oh, no, I'm probably not. Maybe people are going to look at it a little rosy. Maybe like 60% of people will say they're yes in the, in the top 50. 98% of people. <laughs> so almost everyone says they're in the nicest 50% of people. That's way off. So similarly, not only do 98% of people think they're nice, but 100% of people think they're right. I want to play this clip here that's been uh, on my desktop for a long time. This is Peter Thiel talking to Glenn Beck uh, years ago, and he's talking about politically correct culture and lack of diversity of opinion, and they get into climate change, and it's all in 90 seconds. And we'll, I'll un- we'll unpack it here, but uh, enjoy. 1415. And I always think the biggest political problem we have is the problem of political correctness, properly understood. And I understand it as sort of conformity um, and all the peer pressures that push diversity us towards... is good as long as you agree with my diverse opinion. Yes, it's not. Diversity is not just um, the extras from the space cantina scene in Star Wars. It is um, you want uh, people, um, you know, it's not just people who look different and think alike. It's right. diversity of ideas that, that really matters. And so um, and so I think that uh, I think that that's uh, and so I do think that having a space where you can think for yourself uh, and where it doesn't always get second guessed is is very important. And so, you know, there's um, there are people. Uh, you know, we we have a we have all these monolithic debates about science or pseudoscience. There's like the you know there's the climate change uh, debate and uh, and where is that science or pseudoscience? I I think um, I think very often when, uh, I think it's more pseudoscience, but uh, it's it's often. Um, it's it's again when it, whenever whenever you can't have a debate, I often think that's that's evidence that there's a problem. You know, when Correct. people use the word science, it's a it's often a tell, like in poker, that you're bluffing. And so it's it's like uh, you know it's like we have social science, we have political science. We don't call it physical science or chemical science. We just call them physics and chemistry because we just know they're 
they're right. And you can debate the periodic table of elements. No one will be upset if you, if you ask questions about that. We call it climate science. It's a tell, like in poker. It's telling you that, uh, that people are, um, are exaggerating and that they're bluffing a little bit. But, so um, good. But, uh, I, but I think... So it reminds me, it reminds me of a quote from uh, the great Michael Crichton in one of my all-time favorite speeches. He says, Finally, I would remind you to notice where the claim of consensus is invoked. Consensus is invoked only in situations where the science is not solid enough. Nobody says the consensus of scientists agree that E equals MC squared. Nobody says the consensus is that the sun is 93 million miles away. It would never occur to anyone to speak that way. But the climate science, it's, oh, it's consensus, say the desperate scientists. I don't have time to play this clip, but uh, Scott Pruitt, the new EPA administrator, was asked on CNBC if he thinks that... Um, uh, CO2 is the main control knob for climate. And he bravely, it's weird to even say that, said, I know, probably not. And it was like, oh, unbelievable. How could he dare say such a thing? It's definitely not. <laughs> First of all, water vapor is, not even close. But even the effect of water vapor on the temperature of the planet isn't known for sure or agreed upon. And it's certainly, climate CO2 is certainly not the primary control knob for climate. Just, just think of this. When people talk about consensus, consensus has a terrible track record. Here's my, my go-to example. Anyone with two eyeballs can see that the continents fit very nicely next to each other, right? If you take South America and Africa, they fit nicely, pop right into place. Alfred Veniger was the first person to propose this in 1912, but consensus said, oh, no way, you're an idiot, blah, blah. The greatest names in geology called him an idiot. He was a denier, right, of the current beliefs of geology at the time, 1912. It wasn't until 1961 when scientists proved that the sea floors were spreading and that, yes, all the continents were at one point connected. It was 50 years. 50 years this guy was, oh, total idiot. What a jerk. And he's like, and now he's like, oh, like, obviously. <laughs> so anytime people talk about this climate, oh, scientists say, or consensus, it's all a bluff. Why? Because just like people think they're nicer than they really are, people are also way more certain about things than they should be. See you next Saturday. Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.